Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we are bringing you a special broadcast on the environment. Part four of Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Greenwashing Disaster Capital. This is the fourth panel in a series that builds on the momentum created by the most recent report entitled Hoodwink in the Hot House, third edition, resist false solutions to climate change. It is moderated by Tom Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network and is co-hosted and organized by the Hoodwink Collaborative and the New School. As part of President Biden's infrastructure plan, federal and state governments are providing billions in so-named climate subsidies, policy incentives, and tax breaks to dangerous and dirty energy industries. These include biomass and waste incinerators, nuclear power, and carbon capture and storage, CSS as it is known, infrastructure for fossil fuel facilities. Front Line communities are facing increased pollution burdens and toxic threats. In part four, panelists examine and present data on how movement concepts, narratives, and knowledge are co-opted to promote a corporate agenda. Today's discussion highlights emerging threats of climate false solutions across U.S. federal and state policy landscapes. Panelists are community campaigners, community leaders, researchers, and frontline organizations who are fighting the myths associated with carbon capture and storage, nuclear, hydrogen, biofuels, and waste incineration, along with debunking what they see as false climate crisis solutions. They also highlight inspiring stories of success led by environmental justice communities. They point out that to effectively move money away from dangerous policy directions and towards real climate justice solutions, coalition building is needed amongst national green groups, labor unions, climate philanthropy, and policymakers, all of whom should work with frontline communities in opposing these schemes. Today's speakers include Sylvia Ribeiro, ETC Group, Mike Ewall, Energy Justice Network, Dipti Batnaha, Friends of the Earth, Leonardo Figueroa Helland, The New School, and Nemo Bassi, Health of Mother Earth Foundation. This panel was preceded by Hoodwink in the Hot House Part 1, examining false corporate schemes being advanced through the Paris Agreement, and also by Hoodwink in the Hot House Part 2, Frontline Communities of Indigenous Resistance Beyond Climate False Solutions, and Hoodwink in the Hot House 3, Would Bill Bat Better Burn Billions? If you have missed any of these previous shows, parts one, two, or three, you can find them on Sojourner Truth Radio on SoundCloud. You can also find them posted on our Facebook page. 
We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden on Monday announced that the U.S. killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a drone strike in Kabul, Afghanistan. Biden said the operation delivered justice to al-Zawahiri, who intelligence agencies say helped plot 9-11 and other terrorist attacks. Future Story News' Ira Spitzer has more. U.S. President Joe Biden confirmed the news of al-Zawahiri's death in a briefing at the White House. The United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed the emir of al-Qaeda. Biden called al-Zawahiri one of the U.S.'s most wanted terrorists and said that he and Osama bin Laden plotted the 9-11 tax on the United States together, which killed more than 3,000 people. And that's Ira Spitzer. More than a dozen container ships are waiting to leave Ukrainian Black Sea ports today, one day after the first cargo ship full of grain left Odessa for Lebanon on Monday. It was the first food shipment to leave Ukraine since Russia invaded the country six months ago. The voyage puts to the test an agreement signed last month between Moscow and Kyiv that aims to help alleviate a global food crisis. Officials say the Sierra Leone-flagged Razoni is expected to reach Istanbul early tomorrow. Russian, Ukrainian, Turkish, and UN officials are to inspect the ship after it anchors in Istanbul. The inspections are part of a UN and Turkish brokered deal to shift Ukrainian grain stockpiles to foreign markets and ease the mounting world food crisis. China continues to warn the U.S. about possible consequences arising from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's potential visit to Taiwan. China considers Taiwan a rogue province and said the proposed visit amounts to interference in its internal affairs. Future Story News' Patrick Falk has more on the tensions there. There has already been a real show of strength with live firing drills taking place in waters off Fujian province over the weekend. Uh, That was also part of uh, the celebrations marking the 95th anniversary of the People's Liberation Army. Uh, The military also said that there would be military exercises taking place over the next five days in the South China Sea. So the stakes are incredibly high. And that's Patrick Falk. Rainy and cloudy weather has helped firefighters battling a wildfire in Northern California that killed at least two people and burned 100 homes and other buildings. The McKinney Fire remains out of control despite a downpour Monday, and authorities say thunderstorms forecast for today are a mixed blessing. Avery Luke reports. The McKinney Fire has grown into a raging blaze just two days after its eruption in Siskiyou County. California fire officials say two bodies were found inside a charred vehicle in the wildfire zone. The fire is threatening thousands of homes. Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez said Cal Fire and the United States Forest Service are both battling the blaze. He said weather is making the firefighting difficult. That fire is currently over 55,000 acres and has led to the closure of portions of Highway 96. A fire weather watch is in effect in the area today due to abundant lightning and gusty winds, which could present additional challenges. Scientists say climate change has made the West warmer and drier in the past 30 years and will continue to make wildfires more frequent and destructive. 
The cause of the McKinney fire is still under investigation. For KPFA News, I'm Avery Luke. Primary elections are being held today in six states ahead of the November midterm election. Arizona, Michigan, Missouri, and Kansas are among them. Former President Donald Trump's shadow is hanging over some of the races as GOP candidates compete for his endorsement. Public News Service's Mary Sherman reports. Former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens, who resigned over a scandal, is running for the Missouri seat, being vacated by retiring Senator Roy Blunt. He is backed by former President Donald Trump, who continues to target political adversaries, including the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach him in 2021. One is on the ballot today in Washington and two in Michigan. One of Michigan's Republican gubernatorial candidates was charged in the January 6th Capitol attack, and Kansas voters will decide on a referendum which would pave the way for further abortion restrictions. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Those were our news headlines, and we now go directly to Hoodwink and the Hot House, Part 4, Greenwashing Disaster Capital. Welcome to the fourth webinar in our series, Hoodwink and the Hot House. This one focusing on greenwashing disaster capital, how movement concepts, narratives, and knowledge are co-opted to promote a corporate agenda. Corporate interests are hijacking critical climate action around the world by co-opting key concepts, frameworks, and language language from social movements, often faster than they are generated. Indigenous ecological knowledge, strategy frameworks like a just transition, and even narratives like building a regenerative economy have been co-opted recently by big NGOs, philanthropists, and academic institutions, as well as corporations to advance neoliberal schemes like pollution trading, carbon markets, and policy arenas like the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Scores of government agencies, corporations, funders, universities, and NGOs are engaging in this greenwashing pandemic, serving a colonial extractivist agenda that awards trillions of dollars in subsidies to polluting corporations, creating structural barriers to proven strategies and real solutions that our communities and the planet really need. Here, we will be examining dangerous greenwashing threats around the world and exploring how grassroots groups can fight back and debunk corporate greenwash with our own stories, strategies, and solutions for change. This is the fourth webinar that was preceded by webinar one, examining false corporate schemes being advanced with the Paris Agreement, webinar two, frontline voices of indigenous resistance beyond climate false solutions, and webinar three, with Build Back Better, Burn Billions. All of these webinars can be seen at climatefallsolutions.org at webinars, and also on the YouTube channel of the Indigenous Environmental Network. All of this work built on the on Hoodwinked in the Hot House 3rd Edition booklet on resisting false solutions to climate change, also available at climatefallsolutions.org. This event is brought to you by thanks to the collaboration of all the organizations that make a, the collective of climatefallsolutions.org, which are listed here, Biofuel Watch, Energy Justice Network, ETC Group, Global Alliance for Incendiary Alternatives, Global Justice Ecology Project, Indigenous Climate Action, Indigenous Environmental Network, Just Transition Alliance, La Via Campesina, Movement Generation, Mount Diablo Rising Tide, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, North American Megadam Resistance Alliance, Nuclear Information and Resource Services, Rising Tide North America, Shaping Shape Collaborative, and also by the organizations that support the speakers that will be sharing their, uh, their presentations throughout this event. At this point, I will be providing some, uh, an overview of how this event will be uh, organized. Uh, during the first half of the event, we'll have uh, present a framing by our panel moderator, Tom Goldtooth from the Indigenous Environmental Network, followed by presentations by uh, Dipti 
Pat Nagar, Silvia Ribeiro, Nimo Bassi, Mike Ewell, and uh, myself. Uh, and in the second part of the event, uh, we'll have breakout rooms. Uh, we'll ask the audience to select a breakout room that focuses on discussing challenges around climate false solutions in specific areas, uh, such as debunking carbon pricing, carbon markets, and net zero, contesting distortion of indigenous knowledges and practices, exposing nature-based solutions uh, and bioenergy, fighting geoengineering and carbon capture and storage, contesting academic and philanthropic collusion with corporate climate schemes, navigating harmful green energy projects such as industrial renewable energy projects and green grabbing, confronting the expansion of nuclear power and nuclear waste, and combating the petrochemical and plastic industry. At this point, I'll yield the floor to our moderator, Tom Goldtooth. I'd like for the audience to just briefly close your eyes and think about your relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth. The first hoodwinked in the hothouse was a briefing from a research organization called Carbon Trade Watch based in Europe. Later, Rising Tide North America published The Hoodwinked in the Hot House on False Solutions to Climate Change in 2009. Since publication of The Hoodwinked in 2009, it was really clear that climate change policies have expanded, making it a threat to Mother Earth and humanity. It was really urgent to start to look at putting together a third version of Hoodwink. The contributors and supporters to the Hoodwinked booklet are holding the line. We're operating locally and globally. We will not accept climate fault solutions to the climate crisis that continues to commit violence to Mother Earth, to our lands, water, air, and people, humanity throughout the world. So we acknowledge the growing civil society and community-based organizations resistance that are joining us to debunk and counter greenwashing across the climate policies nationally, regionally, and internationally, including genetically engineered trees and bioenergy, waste incineration, geoengineering technologies, carbon capture and storage, solar radiation, techno fixes, renewable energy subsidies for nuclear, mega dams and hydrofuels, net zero emissions, and other carbon market jargons such as going carbon neutral, nature-based solutions, academic collusion with corporate climate schemes, and distortion of indigenous ecological knowledge and practice. So we are seeing corporate interests hijacking critical climate action around the world by co-opting key concepts, frameworks, and language from our indigenous and climate justice movement. Universities, governmental agencies, corporations, large NGOs, banks, and even some of the foundations are engaged in this widespread greenwashing pandemic, serving a colonialist extractivist agenda that's awarding trillions of dollars in subsidies to polluting corporations, creating what we call structural barriers to the advancement of proven strategies and real solutions that local communities in the global south and the north need and in fact have. So we have speakers joining us today to share how they are witnessing greenwashing in their areas of work and in their territories. So the speakers we have today is Silvia Rivero from Mexico with the ETC Group. 
speaking on geoengineering. Mike Ewall from the U.S. with the Energy Justice Network speaking on waste to energy and some words on hydrogen. Dipti Bhatnagar, Friends of the Earth International from Mozambique, South Africa, speaking on breaking down international trend. Our friend Nemo Bassi, head of the health from the Health of Mother Earth Foundation, home from Nigeria, Africa, speaking on fault solution threats across Africa. And we have Leonardo Helen from New School, and he's going to speak on how academic institutions are supporting fault solutions. I'm speaking from Nahua territory, which is an area of a crossroad of indigenous peoples in Mexico, which is also known as Mexico City. So I will try to give you some ideas about this is what is called geoengineering, which is a way of climate manipulation. The geoengineering uh, are a set of technological proposals to intervene land, ocean, and air at grand scale, at mega scale. And they are basically separated into two kinds. One, what is attempting to uh, reflect back this, the, the, the sun rays uh, so, the, so that it could, it could attempt to not continue warming the earth. And the other, which is about capturing and trying to store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There are around um, 25, 30 proposals just now, but I will focus on some of them. Before that, I think it's very important to emphasize that none of the geoengineering techniques uh, aim to address the root causes of climate change. So climate change will continue. And, and because it will continue, this creates a captive market. So the root causes like inequity, fossil fuel industry and sustainable industrial production, deforestation, industrial agriculture, all these will continue and continue causing climate change. That's why this is so, uh, this is such a business and, you know, an opportunity, a business opportunity for polluting industries. And it's also funded actually by uh, the largest billionaires in the planet. So the richest people in the planet, they are funding and promoting geoengineering just now. It's also increasingly subsidized by federal and state agencies as a way of addressing climate change, although it's really not addressing climate change. It's just masking symptoms and creating business opportunities for the same companies and the same actors that created the climate chaos. And this is also masked by green NGOs, by big green NGOs as climate remediation or climate rep reparation. In reality, this is all about a new business, is very little about climate. So one of the technologies that they speak most about and is kind of the basis for many others is carbon capture and storage. And this is a technology that was invented by the oil industry some decades ago, and they haven't used it before because it wasn't economically viable. It is about what they invented was to, you know, use carbon dioxide to press it, inject it in soils, in depleted or almost depleted oil wells. So uh, difficult to access reserves of oil will come up. So this is exactly what they want to do now, but they have changed the name and call it a climate technology because they use CO2 uh, to inject. And because of that, they see that they can get carbon credits and then get public subsidies. 
But in reality, as CL called this technology, this is like adding fuel to the fire because over 85% of all the carbon capture facilities in the world and also in the US are for enhanced oil recovery. That means to extract more oil in deep reserves that were not accessible. So CCS in reality will increase consumption of coal and oil and increase production of oil and coal. So it will increase climate change. The other, the other proposed technologies are kind of similar in the way, for instance, that director capture, which is giant fans to filter air, to filter carbon dioxide directly from air with membranes, with toxic chemicals. It has a lot of different impacts, but it demands a lot of energy. So it will increase energy consumption, either competing on renewable energy or promoting nuclear energy or fossils. It is interesting that uh, for the industry, they believe that CCS and other forms of carbon removal are essential to save the coal industry to ensure, ensure the future of oil and gas and unlock and burn on carbon. This is from the report, but this is their words. So basically, these two technologies that are at the basis of geoengineering, they are aimed to perpetuate the industry. But they also, it's not that they will just use the same facilities that were there. They will construct new facilities, new pipelines, pipelines that will bring new impacts. It's important that to recognize, for instance, that the New Orleans city banned CCS this year. And the reason for that was just the, the, the allegation from the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice is just that it will bring more impacts on the people and black communities around the Gulf Coast that have already suffered the impacts of oil industry. So there are many other dangerous options in geoengineering, including agriculture, the use of agriculture, soar, large scale algae monocultures that will disrupt marine, the marine ecosystems and even people working at that level, transgenic trees, large monoculture plantations, and many others. I want to mention one more, which is this about solar geoengineering that could be even, even worse than doing nothing. And that is also uh, all the companies or the, the research groups promoting this are located in the Un United States, most of them. They are also thinking about doing experiments in indigenous territories that has been resisted by both the Sami Council and Indigenous Environmental Network, and they have defeated them. They are also resisted in Alaska. Geoengineering in general could be called uh, dangerous destruction and ways, new ways of colonialism because climate crisis is real. It's taking, it's taking place alongside many other social, racial, economic, and political crises. But these false solutions are waste the little and precious time we have to change course. They demand massive subsidies and research and development instead of doing reduction measures and supported technologies that are safe, proven, decentralized, and affordable. What we really need is climate justice and system change, not these new technologies. And this has to take into account and be based 
on the experience of grassroots, urban and rural communities, small farmer, indigenous people. All right. So hi, everyone. I'm Mike Ewell with Energy Justice Network. Um, we're a national group based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and help people fight off dirty energy and waste facilities primarily. And I'll mainly speak about waste incineration issues, which has been a big focus of ours. So there are a lot of ways that they linguistically detoxify bad ideas. Basically, every bad idea has been reframed as a solution, you have clean coal, so-called clean natural gas, nuclear is clean. Um, it's not really, but they call it that biomass and waste incineration are also branded as renewable energy in a lot of policies. So every bad thing, even sewage sludge is now biosolids and charcoal is now biochar. Um, there are a lot of things that they throw bio in front of to make it sound good. There are Terms specific to waste burning that they've been using for many years, they like to steal our best words like resource recovery used to mean recycling a few decades ago. Now it's the name of most trash incinerators in the US as part of a lot of their titles. They also use terms like trash to steam or waste to energy as if it's even possible to turn trash into just water vapor or waste into energy, which is not what's happening when they're actually turning it into toxic ash and toxic air pollution. So there are a lot of new terms. Um, waste to fuels is one that they realize that they have an acronym problem. Um, so they stopped calling it WTF, um, but they tried W2F with a number that didn't work. So now they're waste conversion facilities in various other words. We've also seen things like zero waste to landfill. And I'll give an example of that later of a company we've been protesting over that framing. And there's also other technologies like hydrogen, which are not an energy source, it's a storage strategy essentially, and it masks a lot of dirty energy sources that they want to use to produce it and that they currently are using to produce it, most of which is from natural gas, much of which is from fracking, so it's fracked gas. Now this here is the nation's largest trash incinerator, largest waste incinerator of any sort in the US. It's in Chester, Pennsylvania, one of the most glaring cases of environmental racism you can see how close it is to people's homes. And the, again, the picture from the same community. When we highlight issues of environmental racism, there's some nuance that we have to bring to it so that it's not misrepresented. We don't want industry attacking us, pretending that we're overstating the case, which is not necessary. But if you look at this industry, which is a glaring case of environmental racism industry-wide, we still find that 66% of the trash incinerators in the US sit in majority white communities. However, the largest of them are very disproportionately located in communities where people of color are majority. And these are more urban communities. So if you look at the entire industry, the entire industry is affecting people, people of color, especially black people, very disproportionately. But you can't you can't see that pattern unless you adjust for how urban some of them are and also look at the size of the facilities and look at where the biggest ones are. That's where you see the worst impacts. And you also see the, the worst impacts in general across other industries as well, where you have clustering of different polluting industries in communities. That's where the environmental racism trend becomes most noticeable in a lot of cases. We have an environmental justice analyzer that we've built that enables us to look within a minute of analyze entire industries. We once looked at 15,000 uranium mines in the U.S. at once, and within a few minutes, 
it analyzed it and cranked out and found the worst uh, environmental racism pattern of any industry we've seen, very disproportionate uh, for indigenous people. But for trash incinerators, which this slide is about, you can see if all, all of these, at all these distances, if things were equal, they would follow the race ratio of one. And so you see here at all distances out to 250 miles from the average trash incinerator, black people are being disproportionately impacted um, and up to 25 miles on the most of any group. And what this means for those communities is that you have higher incidence of cancers of all sorts, of respiratory diseases, cardiovascular and urinary diseases that studies have found are higher in communities that have waste incinerators. Now, the subsidies that prop this up, we have a lot of local government contracts that have things like put or pay clauses in them, which means if you don't give them enough for trash, you have to pay as if you did, which punishes efforts to reduce waste. We also see a lot of other strategies to subsidize incinerators, such as selling steam instead of electricity, which is much more lucrative. And we're building strategies around that to get incinerators shut down by getting their steam contracts removed. We also see a lot of state level renewable or some call it alternative energy portfolio standards, which are mandates to buy renewable energy, but they define burning trash, burning landfill gas, burning trees, lots of bad ideas, lots of false solutions as renewable energy in many of these states. We also see, and we lost a battle recently in Florida, some state subsidies that are just extreme. They're looking at giving about $100 million a year to build new incinerators and expand existing ones in the state of Florida. And a community caller in Miami-Dade County is being threatened right now with a new incinerator to replace the existing one that people there are opposed to. Um, there's some federal level um, tax credits and standards as well. So the way that we're fighting back, part of it is to battle over the language and not let them call it waste to energy and news reporting, but to make sure that they use the I word and call it an incinerator. We also are often debunking false claims and setting definitions so that we're clear what renewable or what zero waste really means and don't let them keep hijacking our language. We're also increasingly finding that we can get ourselves hired as consultants for local governments to make sure that they listen to the right advice so that they're not constantly hiring the industry consultants that perpetuate the status quo. And also finally, we paint winning as inevitable. We talk to communities about the fact that this industry is is dying, it's shutting down, and it's only a matter of time until the facility closes. It's not if it's going to close, it's how soon is it going to close and will you be ready? This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. When we return, we will continue to hear more from Hoodwing in the Hot House Part 4, Greenwashing Disaster Capital. Hi, this is Gloria Steinem. This is Joni Mitchell. This is Brother Cornell West. And you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Also check out our website at sotrueradio.org. There we have a community calendar and much more. If you're a member of Facebook, you can 
look for us and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio, and we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in indigenous territories across what is now known as the United States. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. We now turn our attention back to part four of Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Greenwashing Disaster Capital. So we've been targeting, in one case, Subaru, which is one of the companies claiming that there is zero landfill. But when they do that, they mean that they're burning their waste instead of landfilling it, which is actually worse. We've had protests at their corporate headquarters in Camden, New Jersey over this. And so if folks want more information, you can reach us through energyjustice.net. I'll drop my information in the chat as well. Thank you, Mike. Dipti from Friends of the Earth International calling in from Mozambique, South Africa. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. Really happy to join you all today. I wanted to start with this idea of the multiple interrelated crises. So, of course, we're facing a climate crisis and it's really terrible, especially for people in this country in Mozambique, which is one of the most affected by climate change and in this continent of Africa. But at the same time, we cannot let them forget that there are many other crises that people are facing. There's an energy crisis, and that also hits this continent particularly hard. There's also a crisis of care. There's a political crisis. There's health crises. There's an inequality crisis. That's an important one, right? We know who created this crisis. We know their names and addresses. It's the richest 5% of people on this planet who produce 37% of carbon emissions between a certain period. So when we're talking about climate justice, we're actually talking about addressing all of these multiple interrelated crises at the same time. And this is why we need to fight against dirty energy and false solutions. That's what I'll be talking about. So the fossil fuel industry wants to extract 120% more fossil fuels than is in any way consistent with staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature rise. We are at 1.1 degrees right now. We know what climate change is already doing to so many of our communities. So we need to fight back. But the polluters, the fossil fuel companies, they want to keep polluting. And that is why they have invented the false solutions. I'll come to that in a second. I just wanted to share a little bit of what is going on in Mozambique. This image in the bottom, we just had this event just now, two hours ago it finished. We've been fighting a mega dam called Mapandangkua here in Mozambique. The fight has been going on for 22 years. It still stopped, but the fight needs to continue. We're fighting uh, one of the largest gas reserves found anywhere in the last 10 years has been found offshore of northern Mozambique. We're fighting against that too. Here's an article that Nimo, who's on this call, and my director here, Annabella, they have published an article pushing back against this false narrative of, oh, Africa needs development, so Africa needs gas. It's not true at all. We want, we, we deserve, people here deserve renewable energy. So these are some of the fights that we're having here in Mozambique. This is happening in Africa and throughout the world, of course, all of these stories that you've been hearing. So we situate ourselves in all of these 
fossil fuels, dirty energy fights, and dirty energy includes incinerator, as Mike just talked about, includes oil, coal, and gas, of course, includes big dams, includes biofuels. All of that is dirty energy. All of that is not the future that we want to see. But what are we getting instead of stopping dirty energy? We're getting false solutions. We're getting the deception of net zero, carbon markets, geoengineering. Suddenly, last year was such a big moment. COP26 was the net zero COP. And we saw all of these companies, all of these crooked companies coming out of the woodwork with their net zero pledges and their net zero commitments. So last year, we released, along with uh, Corporate Accountability and Global Forest Coalition, this report called the Big Con. And this slide is going to be impossible to read, but I'm going to get you a link of this. So we actually looked at the net zero pledges of all of these companies. So it's United Airlines, Delta, EasyJet, Total, Any, Shell, BP, Chevron, Walmart, Amazon, JBS, which is a which is an agribusiness company. So we need to keep our eye on all of the different types of polluters that we are fighting against. So we looked at the net, at the so-called net zero pledges, the net zero climate plans of all of these companies, and it's all complete rubbish. So we know that we need to keep fighting against the big polluters. And just to give you one tiny example, so if you look at the net zero pledges of Nestle, Eni, which is an oil company from Italy, and Shell from the Netherlands, just their net zero pledges and the amount of land that they need for their pledges adds up to three times all of the forests in the entire country of Malaysia. So basically, we know that the net zero, the carbon markets, is a way to go to the global south and to grab people's lands and forests and resources that communities are using to stay alive. And this is why, this is why one of the many reasons we need to fight against false solutions. We just co-released this report along with Indigenous Environmental Network, Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, Health of Mother Earth Foundation. So many of you are on this call today, ETC Group. Fossil futures built on a house of cards because this is really what it is. The only way that these fossil fuel companies are continuing their expansion models is because they're saying, oh, don't worry, we're going to sequester our carbon. We're going to offset our carbon. It's going to be fine. And of course, we know that it's absolutely not going to be fine because the natural carbon cycle does not work like that. What they're trying to do is they're trying to use the word removal to be the same as offset, and it's absolutely not. So very quickly, this bathtub shows that the natural carbon cycle has, of course, a sink. So our ecosystems, when they're healthy, are going to be able to absorb a certain amount of carbon. But what we are doing, which is this side of the graph, which is putting in all of these carbon emissions through burning fossil fuels, there is absolutely no way that the earth can actually handle it, that the natural biological cycle can actually handle all of these human-made emissions. And we need to stop them at source because there is no way that the science works out that this is going to be absorbed into ecosystems. They're talking about ecosystems because they want those ecosystems. They want those land and forests. They want to control. Capital has moved its market into now controlling more land and more forests. So that's why they're talking about offsets. But I want to tell you that the science doesn't work out at all because the natural carbon cycle cannot handle the kind of emissions that we are putting as humans.
humans, some humans much more than others, going back to the inequality that we're putting into the atmosphere. This year, the COP is in Africa, COP27. That is Tom, of course. We were doing a protest in Madrid, if I remember rightly, against carbon markets. So what are the different ways that we can use to fight back? Our next speaker uh, comes all the way from Nigeria, Africa, Nemo Bassi with Health of Mother Earth Foundation. Thank you so much, Tom, and thanks a lot, Dipti, for that brilliant presentation, as well as the other earlier presentations. Now, uh, if we had discussed a bit, I could have, we could have done some carbon or speech offsetting. I would have given you two minutes from my own time so that you could say more of the stuff that you had to share. Uh, so uh, it's a big pleasure to be a part of this conversation. And let me begin by saying that when we talk about false uh, greenwashing, uh, the very first one I would like to mention is the labeling of COP27 as the African COP. Uh, I think this is big time greenwashing. It is not an African COP, it's just a COP, a conference of polluters. It doesn't matter where it's held. We've had four other COPs in Africa. We had one in South Africa, two in Morocco, one in Kenya. This is the fifth COP. So why are they calling this African COP? You're giving the, give Africa a bad name. So I said the COPs collapse in Africa. I, I really want the COPs to collapse in Africa, but don't call it the African COP because it is not the African COP. It's a COP of United Nations that's, that's not ready to take action, to take uh, climate action. So a whole lot of, a lot of, um, this kind of uh, actions are going on. And let me say, for well, the first one, I would like, the second one I'd like to mention is uh, the, the logic that has been sold by African politicians. That Africa, that they, if Africans should, be, should stop exploiting fossil fuel, it means by denying Africans energy. Now, this is absolutely hollow and false because the fossil fuel investment on the continent are not even meant to supply energy to the continent. It's meant for export. Right now, Europe is looking for gas and oil from Africa because of the war that's going on, the war that Russia is fighting against Ukraine. And so talking about energy, the denial of African access to energy, equating uh, that to continuous extraction of fossil fuel is totally false. It's not the truth. And we have to call it what it is. Now, fossil fuel industries have been very much experts at using terminologies to confuse people. And they, they invest a lot of resources in public relations. For example, in managing their image, changing their names. Look at Total, the French company. is now calling itself Total Energies, whereas it's Total Oil or Gas Company. That's what they are. And France has said they wouldn't export, exploit fossil fuels anymore in their territory but they're all over Africa, in Mozambique, in Nigeria, they're everywhere exploiting, in Uganda, exploiting oil. So Total is not Total Energy. Total is Total Oil Company. And it should be, we should keep that label and refuse to call them what they pretend to be calling themselves. There's some other greenwashing thing is the CS. Maybe we can just wait a couple more seconds here. Maybe. Operations will build a clinic beside a polluted river. And they'll say this is corporate social responsibility. It's like putting a drip with poison in one hand and then putting the antidote in the other hand. Couple social responsibility. I'll take off my video so that maybe you can hear me better. Uh, couple social responsibility is just false. It's corporate social irresponsibility as far as we are concerned on the continent. And um, well, some other terminologies used to confuse and stop and, and promote false actions is climate smart. 
You've heard about climate smart agriculture, uh, and this usually refers to genetical, genetically engineered crops, uh, maybe um, for monoculture, for plantation agriculture, as well as for geoengineering. One of the options for geoengineering is to genetically engineered crops that would have white leaves, right? so that they would reflect more radiation into the atmosphere. But climate smart agriculture is, as the way it's defined by corporations, is not really climate smart. The climate smart agriculture is agroecology, is the traditional native species, indigenous species, and they're adapted to our territories. Those are the ones that are climate smart. But whenever climate smart is mentioned, governments open up their ears and they just kind of accept that this is the solution, whereas it is not the solution at all. And then could I just mention recently what has been going on the continent, especially in South Africa, where activists and communities have stood up against exploration for oil and fossil fuels. And then the minister, the minister, one of the ministers there, labeled activists and communities as colonial. Now, can you ever imagine that? Calling them colonial environmentalists, that they don't want to develop the, the country or the continent. And this is why uh, when you oppose destructive extractivism. And so that's, that clearly to me is one way of uh, turning logic on his head because the real colonial, colonial policymakers are the politicians who insist on making Africa a point for extraction, for export to Europe and other places. Uh, yes. Um, one other term, term I would just like to mention before I round up is sustainability. Sustainability has been completely bastardized and uh, it's got nothing at all to do with anything sustainable. Uh, we've got co corporations like Shell publishes a sustainability report every year and then present itself as a company that cares about the environment, cares about the people, cares about communities and does everything that is sustainable. Whereas all they're doing is committing intergenerational crimes continuously. And every oil well is a crime scene, a crime location. Finally, 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 in the one minute that I have left. Now, the concept of divestment, in the global north, divestment has been a very big debate and campaign, and it's been fairly successful getting public funds and institutional funds out of, uh, out of the financial toolkit of corporations. But in Nigeria, oil companies like Shell, like ExxonMobil, and the rest are divesting from onshore fields and investing more offshore. So they may come to tell you in the global north that where we're divesting from fossil fuel, it is not true. They're moving from onshore fields to avoid responsibility and accountability, to avoid cleaning up the mess that they've piled up over the years and moving into deep waters where they will have very little oversight, either by communities or by governments who are actually in bed with them. So divestment has now two meanings. One is to perpetuate pollution, and the other one, which I'm sure you're very used to, is actually getting them out of polluting activities. But that's the reverse of what we're seeing. So these are some of the things I would just like to point out. Now, blue economy, now even the African Union is saying that the oceans are limitless, or have limitless possibilities. And we all know that whatever is on planet Earth, even the Earth itself is limited. And so there's so many, so many false arguments. Yes, and uh, thank you so much for the few moments that I've had to share with all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Nemo. 
Uh, our next speaker uh, is Leonardo from the New School uh, based in New York City. And welcome, Leonardo. Thanks to everybody. I'd like to start by sharing this work of art by Christy Belcourt and Isaac Murdoch. Basically embodies many of the aspects of indigenous cosmovisions, the responsibility to nurture life in its full diversity. And this, of course, has been the basis of the tremendous diversity that is hosted within indigenous territories, 80% of the world's biodiversity and 20% of the world's land. I want to contrast that with the, what we call the colonizer's vision of the world. The idea of basically turning each patch of the world into something that specializes in the production of a benefit that can be consumed for the, what, for the imperial mode of living. Historically, this has led to colonization, genocide, and ecocide, transforming diverse ecosystems and cultures into extraction sites for the production of commodities that are desacralized for consumption in centers of power, urban centers, and in the global north. What we're shifting into, of course, is a larger model of green colonialism, where we now see the partition of the world into sections that will specialize in consumption, extraction, and exploitation, and other sections of the planet that will be enclosed as carbon sponges to absorb the excess emissions, pollutants, and waste from the continuing privileges of the dominant classes. Uh, so in this green economy, basically certain areas are mapped out, identified, targeted as sources for nature-based uh, solutions, carbon sponges, previously in the form of red, now in broader senses, as ways that can continue the reproduction of the dominant way of living without the corporations, classes, and, and, and states that benefit from it from cutting down their emissions and waste. So in this green grabbing scheme, the identification and mapping of indigenous lands as hosts of carbon, uh, of carbon stocks is strategic and key uh, to be able to control them and manage them uh, and retain from them the capacity to self-govern and basically factor them into a total management of the earth system where some parts of the earth are designed to continue emitting and consuming while other parts of the earth are basically going to be reserved as static sponges for that, for those emissions. Uh, within this scheme, uh, the rationale of overshoot uh, necessarily entails that the polluters will continue to emit and therefore there'll be a, a continuous land grab for indigenous and other local populations lands to absorb their emissions. Uh, the dominant knowledge system does not contest this commodification of, of nature. It only identifies the sort of natural consequences, consequences and consequences of a capitalist and colonial system that desacralizes and commodifies life. Uh, this is even the case in uh, IPCC reports in International Panel of Experts on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, where there is uh, an acknowledgement of the value of indigenous lands and in indigenous rights, but there's a reluctance to acknowledge the system that destroys them, the system that commodifies and desacralizes, which is the capitalist system and the property regime of the state system. This state system is the underpinning basis of the international governance mechanisms, which we know under the United Nations framework. Uh, attempting to rely on these institutions to solve the problem is like putting the sheep in the wolf's hands because states are necessarily based on a project of dominion and property over land. And within that model, lands are mapped for their capacity to absorb carbon. It is no surprise, therefore, that at this stage, we've moved from a moment in which indigenous lands and indigenous peoples were invisible from the system to becoming hyper-visible in a negative way. In fact, now they're being visibilized as the primary targets of the locations where carbon will be absorbed. 
even to the extent that Rio Tinto and the World Bank are pushing for the tiling of indigenous lands on the condition that those lands be used as offsetting locations within payment for ecosystem services uh, contracts. So it is an attempt to enclose those lands within contractual relations under state systems and market systems that commodify. And that's a major threat in which struggles for land reclamation, land tiling could be absorbed into a conditional logic of contractual dependence on a global economy of ecosystem services and pollution trading. Of course, this is all part of nature-based solutions, heavily undefined terms that can be used by corporations, universities, NGOs to mean anything and everything. As Dipti mentioned in the report, uh, actors as, as egregious as Shell, Total Energies are basically pledging net zero on the basis of continuous offsetting that will rely on enclosures of lands. One of those cases, uh, you can look at the webpage of Shell, you know, one of those cases is uh, Project Cordillera Azul in Peru, uh, where in this project you have the enclosure of lands at the expense of Quechua people who have uh, been marginalized from the process of uh, from equitable compensation, free prior and informed consent. And uh, to this day, we've seen uh, the reluctance of, of the brokers of these uh, carbon trading deals to acknowledge the rights and benefits uh, that would entail uh, uh, to indigenous peoples. Now, it's important to point out that knowledge production is complicit in this process. In the broad scheme of things, modern science and technology has evolved hand in hand with the development of the state, capitalism, and industry, as well as colonialism. It is not just that academia and science can often fall into the hands of complicity with false solutions, but that it is part and parcel of a project of objectifying nature and turning it into something that can be managed and instrumentalized. Of course, within that context, we've seen the collusion of certain institutions, such as the Princeton Carbon Mitigation Initiative, in collaboration with Environmental Defense Fund, Nature Conservancy, Shell, uh, Exxon, BP, and these sorts of processes. Now, it's important to point out that when you look at this uh, carbon offsetting projects, which is sometimes reportedly benefit indigenous peoples, we notice that Quechua uh, communities in northern Peru uh, raise statements against projects in the so-called conservation areas where carbon credits are being primarily sold to the worst polluters, to Shell, to Total, to the mining company BPA, BHP, to the large industrial forestry and, and paper uh, pulp companies are selling this carbon credits, uh, are buying this carbon credits, claiming to offset their continuing emissions with no real attempt at, at reducing them. Uh, so it's important to understand that no amount of nature-based solutions uh, will be able to offset the continuing damage of an expansive colonial capitalist and state system that has centuries devastating communities and lands and has proven itself completely incapable of withholding itself from the brink of earth system collapse. We're yes, entering into a point where, yes, where tipping yeah. points uh, will make it impossible to conserve forests. Forests will become sources of carbon emissions instead of sinks. And so there is no point in trying to rely on carbon offsetting that retains uh, carbon within short cycles of forest absorption if those forests may go up in flames anyway. We need to shift the strategy to a more direct and frontal 
uh, strategy towards decolonization, moving past the modern state and capitalist system. Thank you, Leonardo. Wow. Thank you for all the speakers. It brings to questions with this sharing of this analysis and research that we have done and the publication of booklets like uh, Hoodwinked. How do we address this issue in a systemic way? Many of us have been attending the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the COP meetings. And like Nemo says, there's been a number of COP meetings in the continent of Africa. Those of us that have done deep analysis on this, how do we implement systemic change? How do we build power from civil society? How do we create a change in investments in the banks and the world banks included? The large NGOs are pushing this agenda, fossil fuels, the whole petroleum industry, the large uh, industrialized countries of the north. So it does create a lot of discussion. Thanks, Tom. And thanks to all our panelists. Well, we are out of time today's show edited by Sojourner Truth assistant producer Alicia Vargas. We would like to thank the Indigenous Environmental Network and to all those who work to produce the Hoodwink in the Hothouse series. We would also like to thank today's engineer Gary Baca. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to Pacifica Radio Archives .org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all please stay well and safe.